0: be seated. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. We pray that you would bless now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, that they would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. For you alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start today by telling you a story, actually relaying a story to you, a story I was told, but, but here's the, we have to have a disclaimer at the beginning. There's a part of the story that is going to sort of stretch credulity, all right? All I can tell you is that the person that told me this story had photos that they showed. <laughs> what you do with that is completely up to you. Uh, in 2013, I was attending a conference run by Dr. Karen Purvis. Now, uh, Dr. Purvis has since gone to be with the Lord, but at the time, she was one of the foremost experts in working with adoptive and foster families. And so, the conference was about how to come alongside those families, how to work with children that had had uh, that had come from hard places, that had experienced really high levels of stress, uh, really difficult circumstances. And so she told this story to talk about the way that stress disorganizes our world. Uh, she said that in her neighborhood, actually, there had been, uh, one summer there was a really tragic occurrence. Uh, there, uh, there was a police confrontation in the neighborhood that had ended in uh, arson and a home being burned down. And it, it lasted for hours and hours and hours. And she said that for the whole day, there, were, there was, of course, the, the police... Uh, Cars were there. The fire trucks were there. The ambulances. She said that for hours and hours, there were blaring sirens, lights flashing, then the the smoke and the fire, people on loudspeakers giving orders. It was incredibly stressful. And she said that within a year of that event, all of the houses on that neighborhood had gone up for sale, that it was just untenable. They had blocked off the streets. People couldn't stay and be at peace in that environment. And so everyone had, had had to leave. But, and here's one of the pieces that sort of stretches credulity. She said the other weird thing was that it also affected the way that the animals behaved in the neighborhood. Again, you have loud lights and sirens, I mean loud, loud sirens and bright lights. Um, for hours on end, she said that she had these, uh, she didn't say what they were, maybe barn swallows or wrens uh, that would make nests in the corner of her uh, door frame. And she said for years, she had watched them, they had laid eggs, she had watched the eggs hatch and then nurture the young and then go on. And they made these little compact nests that were designed to hold eggs. She said after this event, the nest became became disorganized and disarrayed. And she showed pictures of what they had looked like, and then she showed pictures of these monstrosities with sticks just sticking out every odd way. And the thing was that the sticks, the nest was no longer capable even of supporting its function. It was no longer capable of supporting life. And so she'd come out in the mornings and there would just be shattered eggs on the floor that she'd have to clean up. And she said, one day, I said to the, to the birds, we can't do this anymore. This, this isn't going to work. She said, I came out with a, with a broom and a garbage bag and uh, a hose and I cleaned it off. I, I knocked it off, of the, off the door frame. I, I used the hose to clean the area up and I told the birds, I said, we cannot go on. We have to start again. And here's the thing. She said that after she did that, the whole time the birds are just shrieking at her. I mean, just squawking, complaining. I mean, you know, what are you doing? After she did that, the birds came back and over time rebuilt their nest the way that birds ought to build nests. So she had a picture of this duly formed nest with eggs. Now, I, I'm not asking you to believe the story, all right, it, you may think this is, this is a little bit of a stretch. Your birds respond to therapy now. Well, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but as I was reading our gospel text, I was reminded of Dr. Purvis's story because in both instances, there is a chaos that has to be dismantled. And that deconstruction can feel violent and bewildering. Christ, in our passage today, is seeking to deliver us from three and I want you to hear me say three good things. Things that are good in their proper order, but three good things which can become, come between us and the gospel. Three good things that be, can become rival and ultimately self-destructive gods. The love of peace, the love of family, and the love of the self, or the love of life. What we're going to see is that for each of these, Christ, in dismantling them, opens up the possibility for us of finding them in the kingdom of God. So, first, peace. On its face, this is a truly bewildering and confusing passage, right? It's a confusing teaching. Think about how the disciples must have felt. You have uh, Christ, the Prince of Peace, right? That's what we call him. That's one of his, his titles, right? He's the Prince of Peace, says, when you go out to tell people about me, don't tell them that I've come to bring peace, because I haven't. I've not come to bring peace to the world, but a sword. You know, the disciples have got to be scratching their heads. What, What is going on? Here they are preparing to be sent out on the mission field, and Jesus is giving them some final instructions before they go to proclaim the kingdom. And just a few verses ago, Jesus has instructed them about peace, He said, when you go somewhere, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And what's more, who can forget that that striking teaching from just a few chapters earlier where Jesus, speaking to a people that are occupied by a pagan and brutal opposing force, says, you know, the people who are really receiving the blessing of God are the peacemakers. Those are the children of their father." But here's Jesus, the actual son of the father, now rebuking those who say he came to bring peace. It gets, I think it's confusing in the moment. It gets more confusing as we back up and look at the scope of scripture. Think about all the prophecies that the Messiah is going to come and bring shalom to the world. He's going to come and bring peace. Think about the apostles writing in the New Testament, expounding upon what it means to follow Christ. And what do they say characterizes the person whose life is filled with the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. The, the sword isn't in there, right? So what's going on here is is the Word of God incoherent? Is this teaching perhaps putting Jesus at odds with other portions of Scripture? Not, not at all, right? Jesus in this teaching is reordering their values. He's reordering this good thing and putting it back into its proper place. He's drawing, actually, on the testimony of Scripture and challenging them to understand peace not as the God of the kingdom, but peace as an attribute of the kingdom of God. Let me show you what what I mean when I say that Jesus is drawing on Scripture. He's actually quoting one of the prophets here. Uh, This line comes from the prophet Micah. Micah like nearly all the prophets, was sent to an Israel so thoroughly disordered, so thoroughly in rebellion to God, that they were destroying themselves from the inside out. And the whole while that they're doing that, you have these false prophets of God that are saying, peace, peace. We're all good. God wants us to be at peace. Listen to the verdict that the Lord gives in chapter 2. And I'm reading here actually from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. He says... What do you mean by calling yourselves good people? You are the enemy of my people. He goes on to say, You're robbing the poor. You're abusing the vulnerable. And what's worse is you're teaching your children to do the same. And all the while, the prophets are saying, Peace. Nobody rock the boat. We've heard from God, and he's pleased with us. No need for uncomfortable changes. So here comes Micah. With an actual word from the Lord. This is in chapter 7. And he says, The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor and have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter in law against her mother in law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So we fast forward 700 years, right? And here's Jesus, and he's taking this passage and he's reapplying it to himself. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Notice how Christ steps into the actor role. He's the one that's causing the division. Why? Because a peace that perpetuates evil is not a peace worth having. A peace that exists for the sake of itself, not to preserve wholeness, but for the sake of not rocking the boat, is not a peace worth having. There's a difference, you see, between the peace of God and the peace of the world. The peace of the world says, we've all got to play the game, don't rock the boat, right? Sure, there's corruption. Sure, people are getting hurt. Sure, it's a lie, but... That's what it takes to make the world go round. You don't want to be awkward or uncomfortable, do you? Just keep in line. The peace of the world offers a kind of codependency, a misshapen peace negotiated at the price of living with a lie, of living with violence and deceit. And Christ says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to reject that peace. You have to accept that even the good of peace cannot be a God unto itself. Is there peace in the kingdom of God? Absolutely. But it's a peace that comes from the love of the Father, not a peace that sacrifices everything else for its own preservation. Christ wants them to receive the peace of the kingdom, but to do that, he has to unseat the peace of the world. But Christ isn't—he doesn't stop there. He's not done reorder, reordering their lives. As he penetrates deeper and deeper into the soul of man, he moves from this sort of external reality, right, this kind of sociological or political peace, to something much, much more intimate. Instead of talking about peace, he begins to talk about the home. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, this this is an uncomfortable teaching. Right? If you look at your bulletin under my name, uh, this is a weird one for the marriage and family minister to, to be talking about. We don't do this one on Mother's Day, by the way, for good reason. <laughs> I don't think I'll, any of you would be surprised if I say that I am a big fan of, ma- of families. And what's more, God seems to be a big fan of families too. The first divine intervention in the scripture is the creation of the family. It, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Let us make a helper fit for him. We're going to to come back to that in a moment, by the way. Of the Ten Commandments, three of them are explicitly about the family. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or his ox or, you know, some other things. But three of them directly mention the family. And yet here is Christ warning us that the family can become its own barrier to the kingdom of heaven, that even the family cannot be allowed to set up a rival throne in the kingdom of God. I think the danger for us here lies in two ways. First, the family, for, for many Christians throughout time and around the world, can literally become a barrier to the kingdom. You know, I was, I was talking with someone a while back who had done missions in, in Southeast Asia, and he was saying if a child converts there in the, the country that he was in, in the culture he was in, the family goes into a kind of public mourning. I said, why? Why? He said, because their whole self-conception is that the functioning of the family depends upon the appeasement and worship of the ancestors, and the child is breaking that chain. There there won't be any more taking care of the ancestors, which means the family will fall apart. Can you hear the idol in there? You're tearing our family apart by following this new religion. This thing that is good and God-made has now become an object of worship. Now, those ritual practices are less common, maybe, in our own context, but we have our own kinds of disorder here. I think here in the South, as long as you're not too religious, right, as long as you keep things in proportion, then a little religion is fine, right, you're not going to get that level of opposition. It's good for the kids, after all. Uh, I'm reminded of a study I read a few years back. They had gone and interviewed hundreds of parents around the country, and they had asked them, hey, why do you take your kids to services on Sunday?" The answer is fascinating, the most common reason, I don't know if y'all know this, the, the most common reason was, oh, because it teaches them how to be good people. It teaches them how to have good morals. Well, it's no wonder then that there's a staggering decline in family religious participation when the children hit about 13. Why? Well, because they've already learned how to be good people. And now if other things come up, that's all right. You know what? We, we also want to sort of have them be exposed to sports and to, you know, whatever, They've learned the lesson, we can go on. The family becomes the highest good in that that sort of system, right? The the church becomes a means towards an end, and there can be a temptation, I think, to sacrifice for all of us, to sacrifice everything on the altar of the family. To treat it as the goal of life, to be a good son or daughter, a good wife or husband, a good father or mother. And here is Christ forcibly reminding us, the family is not the goal of the Christian life. Is the family good? Yes. Are your closest relations the primary place where you work out what it means to follow Christ, to be to hold Christ, allegiance to Christ? Yes but the family is not an end in itself. It can't be. It can't support the weight of your need for purpose or your need for a Savior. We ruin our relationships when we make them into gods. Your spouse, your child, your parents cannot bear the weight of your worship. It will disfigure them, and it will disfigure you. By the way, I mentioned Genesis 2 a moment ago. I hope you'll allow me just a moment, maybe as a sort of professional privilege, to talk about Genesis 2 for half a second. Because I want to clarify something about theology of the family. What is the good of the family? If we're taking all the family off the altar, I want to talk about where it fits rightly. Here's the deal. The whole of, crea- the, whole of the creation of the family is an act of divine Prophecy. God is teaching us something in the creation of the family. The language God uses, let us make a helper fit for him, which effectively means someone who can provide for his salvation. He said things are not good. Who's going to make it good? Who's going to save him? That language in Scripture does not ultimately come to rest on the woman. The person who takes that language over and over again throughout Scripture as an attribute, who is the helper fit for man, is God. God is the helper who can save. God, highlighting the problem in Genesis, is forecasting an issue which is only ultimately resolved in him. The whole picture of marriage of the family, Paul tells us, is not a destination but a signpost which points us toward Christ and the church. It is Christ alone who can bear the weight of our worship. It is in Christ alone that our desires for relationship finally find their home. And this, by the way, is why a person doesn't have to be married in the church. I don't know if you ever think about that, but in Jesus' day, that completely unheard of as a sort of life vocation, right? It's not that everyone was married, but if you weren't married, that was a tragedy, right? The, uh, in, in Judaism of his time, the first commandment was to get married. But Christ tells us that for a variety of reasons, his people, the children of the kingdom, may find themselves living a life of singleness, For this reason or for that reason, because of calling, because of circumstance, he lays out a few different reasons. But he says this is an option. And furthermore, that this does not make them secondary members of the kingdom. Why? Because marriage is not the goal. There's a need for the church to cherish those who are not married because their manner of life also is a testimony to us. A testimony to us that our need for relationship is ultimately... And only satisfied in Christ. As St. Augustine said, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And then finally, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, in verse 38. Christ comes to the most intimate of our false gods. He's talked about peace in the world. He's talked about our relationships. But now he comes to the very core of our being, the one that each of us holds at the secret uh, center of our heart, the love of self. And by the way, the metaphor here about the cross, right, we all understand that this means death, right? And, And I think we all understand that it means not just death, but an ennoble death, a humiliating and wretched death. But in this context, it has another meaning as well. It means failure. You see, the disciples believe they're preparing for a rebellion. The Messiah has come. He's gathering his people. He's gathering an army, right? They're being sent forth as a kind of vanguard to gather support before they all march on Jerusalem. What does this sound like? It sounds like a Crispin's Day speech, right? He's giving them a sort of a pep talk before he sends them out. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, right? But then right where we think he's going to say... Let go of your attachments, unite yourself to me, and and take up your swords. He says, take up the sign of your own destruction. The cross was the empire's weapon, the very enemies that any self-respecting Jew was hoping to oppose. And in perhaps the most famous challenge to the Roman Empire to date, the the slave revolt of Spartacus, which was about 100 years before Christ, do you know what Rome did with, with the rebels? they lined the streets of the highways of the empire with their bodies on crosses. Jesus says, gather the troops, unite yourself to me, and then take up the sign of your destruction and follow me. Here's the point. It will not do to sacrifice everything else for the kingdom, your peace, your family, your livelihood, but To sacrifice all of that, but then to hold on to your own expectations of greatness and self-fulfillment. And this is hard to do, this challenge in the Christian life. This is such a challenge for us. I, I want to submit my life to Christ. I want to be useful to the kingdom. I want to know that there's going to be a return on the investment. I find again and again, when I am frustrated with my vocation, whether it be as a priest or as a father or as a Christian in the world, I'm frustrated because I'm trying to hold on to the outcomes. I have a dream that Christ will use me in a particular way, and the moment he takes that particular way out of my hands, the moment he bids me to sacrifice myself for what appears to me to be a futile purpose, all of my resolve is undone. I realize in that moment that I have been using Christ as a means to an end. And Christ is here warning his disciples, warning them at the very beginning, it can't be about that. You can only have one master. Peace, family, life, and every good thing cannot be your end. Their only right place is within the kingdom. If you want to be my disciple, you have to follow me. Follow me, he says. There's just one last piece I want to pull out of this text for today. It has to do with that command, follow me. Think about the overall rubric here, right? Christ says that, uh, that to be his disciple requires that you abandon peace, that you forfeit your relationships, and ultimately that you embrace your own defeat. Let me ask you a question. Whose life does that sound like? Whose life follows that kind of pattern? Paul tells us in Philippians, Christ, although he was equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ abandoned the peace that was his by rights, not even a wicked peace, a holy peace. The, the peace that was his as the very word of God. Christ allowed himself to be ostracized from friends and family. Do you remember when his, his family comes to collect him, right? To keep him safe, his, his mother and his brothers come to take charge of him. And he suffered the humiliation of the cross. When Christ says, follow me, he doesn't mean follow my orders. He means follow my example. I've already gone ahead of you. All that I'm calling you to do, I have done already. And what is the result? What do we obtain in following Christ? What did Christ obtain in his sacrifice? Listen to the rest of that quote from Philippians. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul says in our reading from the Romans today that just as we follow Christ into death, we also follow him into life. In the life of the kingdom of God, Christ has secured for you peace and family and life itself. Where we have sacrificed peace, Christ says, I give you my own peace and not as the world gives. Not the corrupt peace of the world, but the peace of the kingdom rooted in the holy love of God. Where we have sacrificed relationships, Christ gives us his very self. Who is my mother and who are my brothers, he says, when they come to collect him. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that is my brother and my sister and my mother. Here is the communion which we so rightly desire. And finally, even the forfeiting of our lives finds its answer and satisfaction in him. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Christ says in the Gospel of John, I come that you may have life, and not just in its partial and disordered state, not just what you can grasp and hold on to for yourself, I come that you may have life and have it fully. Let us go and follow him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.